It is family worship, but we want to try something different. So if you normally go to children's worship, I'm going to invite you all to come on down. So all the kiddos, if you are not in the youth group and you're not of nursery age, come on to the front. We're going to sit right here on these steps. I've got something I want to show you all that I think is going to connect well with what we're going to talk about with your parents and the adults. And as they're coming down, um, adults, you can turn with me. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 17 today. So you can turn there. But I know many of you all have been praying for our family as we have uh, been going through the adoption process. I have some exciting news. We have a court date set with the country that we're adopting from for this coming Friday. So March 31st, that morning, you can be in prayer for us. Um, if the, the court approves, then we will be happy to introduce to you the, the new child that will be joining our family. So you can be praying for that this coming Friday on the 31st. All right, kiddos, come on, squeeze in. You guys can get close. All right, I've got a couple of cards that I want you guys to help me figure out if these are good messages or if maybe they're a bad or a sad message, okay? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hold up the card. Parents and adults, you can look on screen. You've got a little image of what they look like, too. Hold on, hold on. All right. If it, all right, here's what we're going to do, though, okay? If it is a good message, a happy message, I want you guys to give me a thumbs up, okay? You knew it? All right, but if it's a bad message, what are we going to do? Thumbs down. Yeah, you've got it. All right, let's see how this goes. So here's our first one. It's got a little bear on it. It says, don't think of it as being 70, right? And what does the inside say? Think of it as being seven perfect tens. Happy birthday. What do you think? Good or bad? What? Most people are good? Okay. Any bads? No bads? If it's that, yeah, you can slant if you want, Pete. That'll work. All right, so, yeah. Now, hey, some people for their birthday, this may not be the best message, right? They don't want to be reminded of their age necessarily. But in general, happy birthdays are good cards, right? Yeah. All right, that was maybe an easy one. All right, let's see this one. Woo! Look at this card. Hey, listen, listen, listen. Let's see if I can get this to work. Can you hear that? It's supposed to, if I hit it again, it should turn it off. Hopefully. All right, it worked, it worked. So yeah, it looks pretty crazy, right? We got the googly eyes. The inside says, happy birthday, you're totally sweet. What do you think, good, bad? Where are the thumbs, where are the thumbs, good? All right, yeah, that, that was super easy. If anybody wants that one, I'll give it to you afterwards. You can give it to your parents. They'll love that, singing cards. All right, all right, all right, all right. All right, last one, last one. All right, let's see. This one, this one may be hard, okay? All right, watch. So this one, what's on the front? Can anybody see? A cross, right? Okay, so that's good. Let's see what the inside says. It says, may God's love surround you and keep you through this time of sorrow and deepest sympathy. What do you, what do you think? Is that good? It could be both, right? I mean, the outside of the card looks good, right? We've got the cross. That's a good message. The inside, though, it's kind of a sad message, right? All right, you can put your thumbs down. So what we're going to talk about this this morning, what I want you guys to listen to, because normally you get to go to children's worship, right? But today you get to be with the big people. What we're going to talk about is how when we read God's word to us that have put our faith in Jesus and believe in Jesus, it's the best news we've ever heard, right? There's nothing greater than what the Bible tells us, that Jesus came and died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. But sometimes, just like the inside of this card has a sad message, There's a lot of people that when they hear the Bible, they think, 
that really wasn't that great of news. I thought it would be better, right? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a, a prophet from the Old Testament named Jeremiah. And so as you guys are listening to what I'm saying, I want you to hear Jeremiah's own life. He had to tell people a difficult message, but it was actually for their best because it was God's good message for them, okay? All right, let me pray, and then you guys will get to go back to your seats, all right? Father, we thank you for these children that you've entrusted to us here at this church. And God, we're reminded of what Jesus said, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to one such as these. God, we pray that for us uh, as grown adults and, and youth, Lord, we need to be reminded of what it means to have faith like a child. Not that we have childlike faith, but that we trust you no matter what comes, and we take you at your word as a good father. And so as we open your word this morning, God, I pray that you'd speak clearly to all of us, and even for these children. Lord, there is a message that you have for them this morning. I pray that you give them ears to hear and understand what we read this morning from our Bible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, you guys go have a seat, all right? Well, it's fun to get to have the kids with us on family worship. We're going to look at Jeremiah 17 this morning, so if you haven't already turned there, I invite you to turn with me. We're so glad you came to worship this morning. Uh, Adults, for you all, we we use those greeting cards to kind of illustrate good and bad messages in a very simple way. But when you think about your own life, what's been a difficult or hard message that you've had to hear or receive yourself? Uh, It may be something recent even that you've experienced. Or maybe think of it, what are some of the hard messages that you've had to deliver to other people? And as you think through those scenes and you're replaying them through your mind from your memory, you know, what makes a message hard or difficult to hear? And there's a variety of things that we probably have experienced in our own life. But then think through, how do you feel when you are the messenger of the bad news? Or if you were the receiver, how did you feel receiving that bad news? And what we've been talking about in this series that we're calling Kingdom Outposts is how the Word of God does call us to be sanctified, but it also empowers us and equips us with the message that we ourselves are supposed to tell others about. And the gospel may seem on the surface as a mixed message to a lost and dying world, but to us that have experienced the grace of God in our life, it is the best news we've ever heard. Amen. And this is what we're going to focus on today. Mark Cahill wrote a book called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. And no, the answer is not uh, watch the final four. He talks about in heaven, we'll all be able to worship God. In heaven, we will be fully sanctified. We'll be made perfectly righteous. There'll be no other area of our life that no longer needs perfecting because we will receive perfectly holy bodies. And we're going to have eternal fellowship with God and other believers. It'll be the picture of the Garden of Eden before there was sin. But there will be one thing we can't do in heaven, and that's the opportunity to call others to repentance and to put their faith in Christ. Hebrews reminds us that it's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. And while the message of the Bible seems harsh at first, uh, just as John Bunyan wrote in The Pilgrim's Progress, the bitter comes before the sweet. 
And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so I invite you to stand with me. We're going to read this morning Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. Jeremiah writes here, and after confronting Judah over their sin, this is what the Lord gave him. Beginning in verse 5, he says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart And test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You can be seated. The larger context, and and if you have time this week, I'd encourage you to read it, um, of what I studied was beginning in Jeremiah 15.10 through verse 18 of chapter 17. And really, uh, at a high level, this passage is about God's messenger remaining faithful even though he's been given a very difficult message to communicate to a very lost and wicked people. Um, And I think while it is clear that a lot of what Jeremiah is preaching to the people of Judah is that God's judgment is coming, it also, if, if you read those passages in these couple of chapters, Jeremiah himself is moved to grief, not only of the hardness of heart of the people around him, but he himself is struggling deeply with what God has asked him to communicate. And this is what Jeremiah experiences when he's confronting sin, and it should be what we experience as well when we communicate the message of salvation and we see a lack of response. Uh, Jeremiah is referred to by many as the weeping prophet, and you could view it in both ways. He's weeping over the people's sin and their lack of response to the Lord, but he's also weeping over the difficulties in life and looking, where's the goodness of the Lord when I've been told to give just bad news? Uh, One commentator, Dwayne Garrett, says it this way, Jeremiah was a prophet to a people who are condemned by God, who bitterly resent him and his message, and who are ready to kill him. So we can understand why people would call him the weeping prophet. And if you look back, Jeremiah wore... His emotions on his sleeves. Uh, look at this verse in Jeremiah fifteen ten. He says, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, and yet all of them curse me. So at, at his lowest, Jeremiah sounds a lot like Job, right? It would be better that I had never been born. And, and Jeremiah sees the condemnation for Israel that's coming. He tells them they've always been apostate, meaning they've always just been hypocrites. They've abandoned God's love for them. He goes as far to say that the present generation of who he's addressing is even worse than their forefathers that were taken out of slavery in Egypt and in the wilderness began to become frustrated with God that it took so long for him to deliver them to the promised land. But even so, we know that God 
will redeem Israel. And as we looked at last week, that the future work that God said he would do in the new covenant will be even greater than the exodus itself of what he did early in Israel's history. But the other thing that Jeremiah has here, and we're going to really spend a little bit of time right now looking at it, is this description of the human heart, right? The human condition. And verses 5 through 11, he gives us this comparison. Uh, If we look at those, he talks about the man who's cursed because he's made man his trust and his strength, as we see in verse 5 of chapter 17. He describes him as a shrub in the desert. He'll dwell in parched places in an uninhabited land. But then in verse 7, he begins the contrast to the blessed man who's made the Lord his trust and whose trust is the Lord. This recalls something that Steve Klug preached to us at the beginning of the year in Psalm 1, right? If you know Psalm 1, it says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And it goes through the list. And it says he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. And so Jeremiah is, is maybe pointing us back to Psalm 1, but where Psalm 1 was maybe a more general approach, here Jeremiah is really just looking at the current stage that Judah and Israel are in and trying to point out that their wickedness is a condition of their heart, something they can't change. So when he describes it, look at what he says in verse 5. Why is the man cursed? Because he's looking to human help for his trust. He's trusting in something that will always fail and that's fleeting. And he gives this description, right, of a shrub in a desert in verse 6. And, uh, you know, we've been going to Home Depot to get ready for our spring cleaning and and plant some things. We're not talking about the cute little succulent plants that people decorate around their houses, right? It's not that kind of desert shrub. Really, the picture that I think Jeremiah wants us to, to think about is a tree that should be planted close to water, but has been transplanted and put in a dry land. And so it's, it's really, it's useless, right? It's a pitiful picture. Um, imagine putting a, a redbud tree in Death Valley. That's the picture that I think Jeremiah wants us to see of what a wicked life that does not put their trust in God looks like. But he counters this in, in, in the verses that follow, 7 through 8. He talks about the one that's put his trust in the Lord, and the way that the Hebrew is written, our translations help us, but the best way to view really verses 7 through the beginning of verse 8 would be to say it's, it's the result of putting your trust in the Lord is that the Lord becomes your trust. And so the object of our trust is God himself so that you'll become like a tree that's planted by living water. So what Jeremiah is saying is that if these people will put their trust in God, God will become their trust, and then God will make their life much better than what their circumstances around them look like. And this will be his message as they go into exile, is he commands them to plant their lives in the land of captivity as a demonstration to others of how God is preserving them even in the midst of exile. But in verse 9, we get a very strong statement. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, or some translations may say, incurably sick. And so if we 
see that the heart is opposed to God, it must be turning to something else. If it's not turning to God, it's turning to sin. And even though Jeremiah and his ministry and these previous chapters and the rest of his book is praying that Judah would be delivered from their sin, the reality is the condition of their heart prevents them from being obedient to the Lord and responding to him in faith. He goes as far, if you look down in verse 13, the last part of verse 13, he says, Israel's forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So not only are they going to be planted if they refuse the Lord as if they were a tree in the desert, but they've forsaken the fact that God himself has told them he will be more than abundant for what they need to be refreshed. And when we think of, about incurably sick, we just had Dr. Brown and Ellie up here talking about their medical mission trip. But if you think about the condition is the heart, and earlier in the Old Testament, we even see commands from Moses saying, the Lord has said, you need to circumcise your heart. He's giving the people an impossible command. You cannot cure your own heart. And so when he, Jeremiah is making these statements that the, the heart is deceitful and it's desperately sick, who can understand it? We, the reader, the listener, should come to the conclusion that there's nothing we can do on our own to change our condition. When we're controlled by sin, we cannot choose God. We need a new heart. We need a physician for the heart. If not, we will fail to thrive, and we will surely face the punishment of our sin. And it's in that context, though, that the Lord replies in verse 10, and he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. And test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And since God knows the thoughts and intentions of each person's heart better than themselves, then he knows who's worthy to receive his salvation. And he gives that person a new heart so that they can know him and respond. And it goes even further to this saying to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Just as we preached last week, when we come to a saving faith in Christ, there's an expectation, not of demand, but expectancy on God's part that with this new heart, we now have a changed life that's demonstrated through righteousness and repentance. And that's what we looked at last week when we focused on sanctification. So this is the summary of, of Job's dialogue with God. If, if he will put his trust in the Lord, then the Lord will be his trust, and this is what his life will look like. And it's in this context of cursing and blessing, and then the condition of the human heart that we're going to look at today of what does it mean for us that are in the new covenant, as Jeremiah told us we would be through the work of Christ but how do we share this message of hope in the midst of a generation and people who really don't view it as anything other than the worst news they could have ever been told? So that's what we're going to look at today. Last week we talked about the church is to demonstrate Christ-likeness through sanctification. This week we're really going to look at that the church is the messenger of the new covenant. And so this is our first point this morning. We communicate what we have received. The, the benefit for us is that we do not have the same message as Jeremiah. We're, yes, a big amen. 
we are not here telling people that they are going to be taken into exile, put into bondage to another people, and that they have to wait on God to respond to their cries of help, but that they are going to experience the punishment of the Lord for a season to discipline them for their sin. But what do we communicate? Well, first, each of us has a wicked heart that needs changing. Romans 3.23 reminds us of that, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one wants to tell anybody else that they have a hard heart that needs changing, right? But the reality is God's, God's punishment must come upon us because of the condition of our heart. It's constantly bent towards evil. We only left to our own with the heart that is hardened by sin. We, we are hostile to God. We will never come to him on his terms. And that's the condition that Jeremiah speaks of in 17.9 with the heart being sick and needing the work of the Lord. And it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit through what we call conviction for our sin, that we have an opportunity to respond. And when we feel that tug, the conviction or the guilt that we have offended God and and violated his, his covenant with us, that he would love us and we've gone against that and chosen our own way, God uses his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to help us face the reality of what we face is the punishment of our sin, right? So the second thing is that the consequence of our sin is eternal separation from God and punishment for our sin. And we see that Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is what? Death. But there is hope. God has taken the punishment upon himself. And as we see at the end of verse 23, we also see it even more forcefully met in Romans 5.8. That God shows his love for us and that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God offers his grace because he took all of the punishment, all of his own anger and wrath against sin, and rather than taking it out on us, though we rightly deserved it, he was willing to put it on his son. And that brings us to the final thing, that if we receive Christ, then not only do we receive God's grace, but the condition of our heart is changed, we are given a new heart that can know God and serve him. Romans 10, 9 through 13 gives a beautiful description of this. But centering in on the beginning, Paul makes it very simple. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who have received this gift through faith, not because of anything we do on our own to earn God's favor, but believing that God has made a way, we've not only had our sin removed, but we've been reconciled back to God. We don't have the verses on screen, but if you want to write these down that you can look at later this week, Romans 5.1 and Romans 8.1 are great promises of the fulfillment of what we've received in Christ when we come to saving faith. And this radical change of getting a new heart and a new life is not only what qualifies us as ones that can communicate God's message of salvation, but it commissions us to go and tell others of what it means to put faith in Christ and be saved from our sin. 
Think of it a different way. If you'll flip with me, we're going to look at this passage in John 17. But part of Jesus' final prayer for his disciples, John 17, 18 through 19. Jesus praying over his disciples, praying to the Father, says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Your sanctification through Christ's death and resurrection is what qualifies and commissions you to be God's messenger. Uh, if, if we take literally what Jesus said, he laid down his life not only to way, make a way for salvation, but to give us the authority and the ability to speak this good news to other people. And so can anyone get in the way of the church being able to share the gospel? When we look at Matthew 28, 18, how does Jesus begin? All authority has been given to me. And we may come to a time, church, where authority on earth says you've gone too far in what you are telling others of what you think the Bible says. And Jesus stands here not only to say, not only do I have authority through what I've done, but he goes further through what he prayed in saying that he laid down his life, shed his blood so that that is your authority of why you speak what you speak. It's not because we follow the letter of a law. We follow the life of the son who set himself apart for this message and that we may be sanctified in the truth and carry it on. If you flip back to Jeremiah in verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15, verse 16. After Jeremiah, Jeremiah made that, that terrible statement, right, in verse 10 of, woe is me that I was ever born, that my, mo- my mother even conceived me. Uh, the Lord rebukes him gently. And then this is Jeremiah's response in, in fifteen sixteen. He says, God, your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name. O Lord, God of hosts. And this is not a boast of self-righteousness, right? When Jeremiah writes in two chapters forward in 17.9 that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick, he's put his own heart in that summary statement, right? He knows who he was, but he knows what he's become because of what the Lord has done in commissioning him to be the servant. And so the only thing that Jeremiah recognizes that separates Judah and him from the Lord is the fact that he's responded to God's grace. And the same is true for us. And so the most effective messenger of the gospel is going to be the voice of the one who has received it, whose entire life is changed by it, and who understands that just because they've tasted the goodness of the Lord, to share it is a natural response to the grace that you've received in Christ. So if you're looking for a good scripture that's a good summary for this first point, I think we look at what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. You can turn there. I think it'll be on screen as well. But a beautiful description of what we've received when we came to faith. Paul writes, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our evangelism is really um, focused on reconciliation. And it's, it's no different than a statement that Paul would make in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so those who proclaim God's salvation, we ought never do it out of spite or do it with, with joy in the sense that we are telling people they're condemned to hell because of their sin. It, it ought to, like Jeremiah, break our hearts. We ought to be sensitive to the message we're communicating. Why? Because we were no different. And, and I think when we look at this first point, that the church has been commissioned to live this out, the importance of sanctification is that it gives teeth to the message of what we're communicating. Because such were some of us, regardless when we came to faith, regardless what we think our life looked like, from God's perspective, we were all caught in the same entanglement of sin and all needed to be free, all needed to be washed and reconciled back to him. And it's because of the power of the message of the gospel that it brings us to the second point, that even when the gospel is difficult to communicate, we persevere. And so our second point this morning, we are faithful despite hardships and fruitless efforts. Communicating the gospel faithfully, it, it has a cost. And for some of us, that, that cost may just be deep discouragement when we see what we think is a fruitless presentation of the gospel to someone that does not respond. When we face discouragement, the way we stayed renewed in our efforts of evangelism is by focusing on the Lord and what he has done. Think back to Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. He says, blessed is the man who trusts the Lord because the Lord has become his trust. And the results of that trust are the blessed life that we see like a tree planted by water. And so the question for us is where is our trust when we share the gospel? Is it a method that we've been trained and told if you share the gospel this way, you'll see fruit? Um, or is it in just being faithful to deliver the word of God, regardless of the method, understanding that there is something that the spirit has to work on the heart of the listener in order for it to be received? When our evangelism does fall on deaf ears, which it does many times, probably most of the time that we share the gospel, it will seem like it's returning fruitless in what we've done. I think there's some things that we can encourage one another with and ourselves when we, when we feel those things. First, um, when we share the gospel, let it be a refreshing reminder of what you yourself have experienced. 
So if the gospel has become stale and cold and it feels like duty to have to share the message of the gospel with someone else, it may be a good opportunity to examine our own hearts and say, Lord, have I grown cold in what I've received? As we get into this Easter season and we look at the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf, if, if the image and the thought of God sacrificing his son because of your sin does not move you to want to repent of sin and to fight sin and temptation and then to praise God for the grace that you've received at the cost of his son, then that's the battleground where we need to start before we can really share the gospel effectively with someone else. But if the, if the gospel isn't received and it's not an issue of my own heart, but I'm facing discouragement because I'm not seeing the spirit working when it's shared, where do I find encouragement? Well, I'd encourage you, look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2. So if you turn to the left in your Bibles just a little bit in his first letter, 1 Corinthians 2. We won't read this whole section, but verses 1 through 15, essentially this whole chapter, describes the supernatural process that's going on when we are, what we think, just um, logically presenting to someone the gospel. This is what is supernaturally happening in the heart of the listener. If you skip down to verse 9, Paul writes and he says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Sounds a lot like what Jeremiah said. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when we share the gospel, there is a work that we cannot do. No matter how well trained we are in our apologetics of trying to defend the faith. No matter how well you have the word of God memorized. It will return void 100% of the time if the spirit has not moved in the heart of that individual to give them understanding of what's happening. And more of a reason to praise God that we who have put faith in Jesus have received what we've received because it's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, so that no man can boast in our salvation. And so when we engage, and if you're here this morning and you're hearing us deliver what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and it does not seem to have understanding in your heart It never will until the Lord moves. But when the Lord moves in your heart, that is the time to act on it and repent. And you will be saved when you call on the Lord in faith. But the second one is not necessarily just fruitless efforts, but when we face hardships for sharing the gospel. So looking at the life of Jeremiah, the the nation, it appeared that they were not going to be repentant even though Jeremiah thought he was delivering the word of the Lord, that they would hear it and receive it. And so he became discouraged, and we've seen how we fight discouragement. But the other thing that we know from the life of Jeremiah is he faced tremendous hardship and persecution 
for delivering this message. And the same may be true for some of us and many around the world that we call brothers and sisters in Christ. It is true for them daily. But it's in those opportunities that we remind ourselves just of what Christ has done for us. We have an opportunity to demonstrate to the world that the love of God for us is perfected in our weakness. So look at these passages, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. Paul writes, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around our, in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Look at 2 Corinthians 11.30. Paul writes again, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And just like Paul's experiences when we suffer hardships, those are the best opportunity to magnify the strength of Christ demonstrated through weakness. And so if Christ had to suffer for sin, then it is expected for his church to at times be willing, but also themselves suffer so that the world can see Christ for who he truly is. The foolish things of the world shame the wise. So rather than feeling like we always have to have life perfectly together, I think what Paul's reminding us of is if life seems too good to be true, it may be. And for the life of a believer, what we find solace in or comfort in is not in the fact that life is going well, but in the fact that we are following Jesus when life does not go well, and it's in those moments that we find the most strength. And this is our final point this morning. So we've been given a message that we speak of what we've received. We're faithful in that message. But third, it ties back in this theme of what we're looking at these past two weeks. We ought to view ourselves as outposts for the kingdom of God. Rob and I were talking about it this week. And in an age, in a culture, especially young people, uh, in a time when society finds value in what you look like virtually so that you can influence the perception that others have of you. The church is not here to influence others towards the gospel. It's here to demonstrate life change that's occurred in us to call others to themselves be changed. And so, yes, we seek to push back darkness in areas of social justice, and we would love to see God's justice established on earth, but much more than that, we expect to see pushback because we're asking the world to change into something that it cannot do on its own. And so I, w I was driving the other day and I was thinking, this church and we individually as Christians, as you're driving home, we ought to look like these redbud trees and other trees that you see blossoming at this time of year when the other life around it seems dead and lifeless and void. We ought to stand out as trees that are planted by streams of living water. And that's the way God's designed our life. And if we think of ourselves as being saved 
towards righteous things that God wants to do through us, then we ought to be the first people to say, we don't have it all perfectly, but just as that tree's blossoming in the new life, we can point you to what God's doing in my heart. And he wants to do the same work in your own. But this, this third point, as much as we've been emphasizing the, the substance of what we preach and the message of the gospel, the big question for us, Northwest, is where do we go with the message? And so before we answer that, let's look at how Paul viewed his own ministry. If you turn with me to Romans 10, 14 through 15. Paul starts by saying, how then will they call on him? And whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then flip to the right, Romans fifteen twenty. Look what he says here. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. If you look at statistics, um, at least according to one group called Radical, they estimate that there are roughly 3 billion people in the world in about 7,000 people groups with distinct languages that are considered currently unreached by the gospel. Unreached, when we throw around that term, we don't just mean that they are lost, that they have not come to saving faith, but it means that they don't have access to the gospel through a reproducing church. And so basically, their hope of evangelism is for people like you and I to go to where they are and use our resources to reach them. Radical did some other research, and this is from 2021, so it may have improved, but at the time... They said that churches in general are spending approximately 99% of our missions resources in places that are considered already reached with the gospel. So if you flip that and you put it another way, churches spend less than 1% of our missions resources among the 3 billion people and 7,000 people groups around the world. But the encouragement for our church is not that we need to look back at our budget as the answer, Look at what you've seen us do and what you yourselves are doing in answering this call. We just recently got back from spring break with 30 individuals, many of whom were families that were sacrificing their vacation time to take the gospel to a new neighborhood where there is yet to really be a regenerated church that can give the gospel and see fruit come. So this church is going to hard-to-reach places even in our own backyard that are roughly 10, 11-hour drive away or an hour-and-a-half flight. We sent a team to Peru to an indigenous people group on a river. You saw the pictures of, of what Dr. Brown and Ellie experienced a week or so ago, going to a tribe where there's little to no gospel witness ongoing among them. We sent a team to North Africa where, as our team recapped a couple weeks ago, there are, by best estimates, 10 family units reaching 3 million people in an area of North Africa that has no known established church. 
And so here at Northwest, we speak of going, sending, and giving. And we do all three, and we're doing them very, very well, but we can always do better. And I would encourage us to not only have these verses in Romans 10, 14 through 15, and Romans 15, 20 committed to memory, but to really make them our prayer, that we would be a people who are preaching to those who have yet to hear, but the Lord has commissioned us to go. And so as you think through these things, there may be a slide behind me. What would it look like to develop a sending culture here at Northwest? So for our young people, when you think through your life, whether you're in middle school, high school, getting ready to go to college, or you're in college, do you think of how sharing the gospel should shape what you're going to use your life for, for the glory of God? When you're picking a major, do you pick a vocation or something that you can learn that will give you gospel access in what some parts of the world are called restricted countries? And then for adults, how does sharing the gospel shape our day-to-day life? If we combine the two messages from last week and this week, in every interaction that we have when we step foot outside of our doors, are we thinking through the example we are giving to others of what it means to be sanctified by the work of Christ? Do we demonstrate it in our language, in our behaviors, in our attitudes? Do we seek opportunities to be bold and proclaim it to those that need to hear the message? Some other practical ways, and I brought up those families that gave up time, but do you even give thought to the fact that the Lord's blessed you with a job that has vacation time so that you can take your family on vacations and be paid by your work to engage in gospel ministry? Do you use your vocation to find missional opportunities? You that are engineers and get to travel to broad places around the world, do you seek those job opportunities where you may get to go to a restricted country and have opportunities to build relationships with other businessmen and women that would help you share the gospel with them that they've never heard it before? And then for us in general, just like as we did with our children, church, do we view ourselves as raising up a generation of senders and goers and givers that will live on mission for God? Hope reminds us it just takes one generation that can lose sight that the gospel not only has changed us for our benefit, but has changed us to be commissioned as God's messengers. My prayer is that we would not be that type of people. So there's a lot in here this morning, but as we close, I think the appropriate response, and I, I asked Christian if he would sing that song again, I think it was called People's Praise. Because I think it summarizes well of what a prayer of us should be in response to what we've seen in the life of Jeremiah and what we know, as I said last week, we've inherited the ministry of the prophets to go and tell the good news of the gospel because we have been changed by it. And so as the worship team comes up, if you would like some counseling, maybe there are things that you want uh, pastoral team to pray over we'll we'll be off to the side we won't be directly out front so you don't have to feel as uncomfortable but cody rob and i'll be standing over here off to the side so that you can come we'd be happy to pray with you um but let's ask the lord to do a fresh work let's ask the lord to remind us of the salvation we've received 
And as we enter the Easter season, we're reminded that we have been gifted to give. And the main thing that we are to give is all of ourself and sacrifice to the gospel. Let's pray and we'll continue to worship. Father, we, we face a daunting task, but it is not impossible because we know that you're behind it. And Lord, there are simple, practical ways that we need to take first steps of obedience this morning to allow ourselves to be used by you to share the gospel where it's not been heard. So would you give us the confidence that is from your spirit, rooted in what Christ has done for us, that he has sanctified us, laid down his own life, that yes, we become the righteousness of God, but also that we can be commissioned to sin. And God, as our saying is here, we want to be a church that loves Christ and lives his mission as a people that are sent. We thank you for this time. And God, continue to, to work in our midst as we seek you and what you have for our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.